So anyways, that's all I got. Would you guys do me a favor and welcome up Brittany as she comes and shares her testimony this evening. Brittany, and I'm a grateful follower of Jesus and an adult child of a dysfunctional family healing from shame and codependency. Go ahead and pray with me. God, tonight I pray for the person who sits in this audience who needs to hear my story, the one who feels scared and alone, and the one who didn't know there was anyone else like them. I pray for my own heart as I share openly my trials and triumphs and for those in this room to hear your glory. Amen. My journey began in the East Bay in 1993. I am one of the younger ones to share my testimony up here, and I've heard that so many times in so many of my groups, but I need recovery just as much as all of you old timers. <laughs> right? <laughs> my parents were both from dysfunctional families themselves with hidden secrets, anger, favoritism, perfectionism, codependency, and even broken marriages. In that first year of my life, we moved here to Stanislaus County. As a child, sorry, it's too short. I said I was short, but I'm not that short. Um, I was nicknamed Jekyll and Hyde. My emotions were quite large for the little body God gave me, and my parents didn't necessarily have the emotional knowledge to handle it. The first memory of dysfunction that I hold is that of my parents arguing far down the hallway after my second sibling was born. I remember telling them that their fighting made me very upset and they needed to stop. Uh, as any parent would, myself included, they laughed at me and it did not stop. It actually began escalating. My parents would argue over things no small child can understand and I had a strong sense of justice but I didn't have a place to aim it. All I wanted was happy parents. It was around that time that my codependency kicked in. I felt a responsibility to protect my siblings and my mom. I was the oldest and I couldn't make my mom's day any harder. That codependency only grew from there when my parents' disagreements and issues began affecting even my seven-year-old life. Every day when we got in the car after school, my mom would share every detail of her own day with me. I became a little counselor and my responsibility again was to protect my mom from the world. It was around this time that my dad started spending more and more time in the garage rather than in the house with the family. When he was inside, his angry outbursts were enough to send me and my siblings hiding in our bedrooms to avoid him. This pattern of distance from my dad, arguments between my parents, parenting my own mom, and the culminating codependency resulted in my embodying the role of caretaker that continued into my teens and young adulthood. My codependency was exasperated by my grandmother throughout childhood as well. She didn't understand my lack of control over my emotions, my stubbornness, my sense of justice, my need for control, all of which are now explained by my adult diagnosis of ADHD. She called me names like brat and spoiled. She would passive aggressively comment on how I needed to grow up. Grandmother didn't visit our family much until my younger sister was born. She wanted to be called grandmother, not grandma, but she completely ignored me and pretended I didn't exist until I figured it out for myself. Her treatment shaped my internal belief system that I was unworthy, unlovable, and not accepted in my own family. I learned to rebel, especially when she showed how much she loved my siblings or my cousins over me. I avoided displays of affection towards her. 
My reactions were handled with more spite from my grandmother who spoke negatively of me to the rest of the family. For the last four years of her life, she was fighting cancer. Much of our free time was spent driving between Modesto and Oroville to spend time with her, take care of her, and make the most of her last days. For the last year or so, if we weren't there as a family, my mom was there caring for her and my grandpa while we were left at home with babysitters, my dad, and my other grandparents. To say I was angry is an understatement. At 10 years old, I deeply resented my grandmother. I didn't have the attention of my own mom, and I was forced to continue carrying the baggage of grief alone. To see my mom care for someone who showed me so much hatred cemented my beliefs that I was unlovable and unwanted. About a month before she passed, grandmother was hospitalized. I demanded to go visit her whenever my mom visited in those days because of my desperate need for attention that I felt was being stolen from me. From her hospital bed with my mom and aunts in the room, grandmother apologized to me for how she treated me over the years. Here I was at 11 years old feeling abandoned and ostracized from one of the women who was supposed to show me love and all I was ever taught was bitterness. She was apologizing. How was I supposed to feel? No one had ever apologized to me before. I remember everyone crying and all I felt was my heart hardening. I'm sure pure hatred emanated from my body at that moment. Grandmother had wasted 11 years and made me feel responsible for it all. The kicker was when she asked for my forgiveness. How dare she? A month and a half later, she passed with my mom by her side. I didn't shed a single tear for her. My family would probably remember me at this time as a bundle of anger and emotions that overwhelmed the household. Everyone chalked it up to sadness that my grandmother had passed, but that wasn't it. It was anger at lost time and relationships with two of my maternal figures, my grandmother and my mom. These were time and relationships I wouldn't be able to recover that would affect me into adulthood. I wasn't caring for myself at this time, as I was a child and I didn't know how to get attention any other way. I look back now and I see a hurting child who didn't brush her teeth, didn't do her homework, and didn't know how to live. Since we grew up in the church, I was very righteous about my faith and religion. There was only one way to live, and that was my way, regardless of the fact that my family was still living in codependent dysfunction. My way was the perfect, what would Jesus do way. I remember pointing at other families at church and whispering about how they fell short of perfection. We would show up to church in our dresses and our perfect hair, having just left a loud argument between my parents and leaving my dad at home to drive himself almost every Sunday like clockwork. Dad almost never ate dinner with the family, choosing to spend that time in the garage or at work. When he was home for dinner, we had to be silent or he would become angry over our silliness. It was obviously my dad's fault that there was anything wrong with us and there wasn't anything wrong with us. We were perfect, yet we weren't. My attention-seeking behavior reared its ugly head and caused psychosomatic symptoms of widespread pain and fatigue my sophomore year of high school. I struggled with fatigue and pain for five years that I now understand were symptoms of depression and anxiety, not the chronic illnesses I thought they were. Psychosomatic just means that there's no physical reason for the pain other than my brain using it as a coping mechanism to deal with trauma. My pain was real, but I used this pain as a way to garner sympathy from my parents, teachers, and peers, and get away with being a nasty human being. I was jealous of other girls, and I struggled with female friendships throughout this time. I believed that I was smarter, more godly, and more perfect than my friends, and that they benefited from my friendship more than me gaining anything from them. These were all coping mechanisms for my internal fear of being unlovable, unworthy, and un not accepted. I have very few true friends left from that period of my life due to my character defects of jealousy, gossip, and pride. When high school ended, I escaped. I ran. 
I went back to the East Bay for college, where I could discover who I truly was. One day at a time, and Al-Anon says, I can prepare myself to make decisions only by becoming of the aware of the person I am, by getting acquainted with myself. At that time, I found a place where I truly belonged and where I felt loved, not for the things I could do for others, but for who I was. But this didn't solve my problems. At home, the family dysfunction raged on. I ran further and further and vowed never to move back to Modesto again. <laughs> Oops. Um, I struggled with depression throughout college, feeling alone, hurt, and broken whenever things didn't go to plan. While my psychosomatic symptoms disappeared, my codependency, my anger, my depression, and my dysfunction did not disappear. The fall of my senior year of college, I was living my dream. It was around that time that I told my parents, and I quote, I will not be moving back to Modesto after getting my teaching credential, unless you find someone for me to marry. Ha! My mom said, challenge accepted. By February of my senior year of college, I had been introduced to the bass player at my mom's church. He was cute, he played the bass, he liked hiking and cooking, and I, did I mention how cute he was? <laughs> All was wonderful love at first sight during our long distance relationship, until it wasn't. You see, Drew is a recovering addict, so I was still the perfect one here in this relationship. I could be his fix. He would continue staying sober for me because I am perfect and wonderful and could do no wrong. As soon as we got engaged, and as soon as we started planning the wedding, the real me came back out. Jacqueline Hyde came back. I was an anxious, depressed mess. All I could hear or see was what he was doing wrong. He didn't accept me or love me right. He was overreacting to everything. He didn't show his emotions enough. Yet I was the one losing my mind over silly, small things. By God's grace, not only did we make it through our lovely outdoor June wedding, we also miraculously made it through our three-week-long road trip honeymoon. We now lived in the same house, in the same town that I never wanted to come back to. His every move reminded me of my dad, and I was so afraid that Drew would yell at me for the longest time. We've now been in marriage counseling since day one of our marriage, slowly piecing together a healthy, happy relationship. When we got our first positive pregnancy test almost two years later, I called Drew right away, and his response was a lovely four-letter word. It was Mother's Day that weekend, and we shared it with our families. Just a few weeks later, the weekend of Father's Day, we were camping with family, and I began bleeding. Immediately, I felt a heavy sense of shame and grief that I have never felt before. I was at fault. This was all because of something I did. I had hoped too hard, I was too excited, I took anti-nausea meds and caused this. Since the bleeding stopped within 12 hours, the doctor cleared us to continue our vacation to Disneyland the next day. He told us to enjoy our second anniversary. What a sad way to spend our time at the happiest place on earth. When we returned from our trip, we found that the baby was still there, but so was a blood clot the size of baby. I was 12 weeks pregnant. I spent the next few months of pregnancy feeling intense shame and guilt. What if the baby was somehow damaged? What if I had caused this? I was now seeing a high-risk doctor twice monthly ultrasounds that were calming and yet anxiety-inducing at the same time. I was supposed to be glowing and happy, and yet all I felt was awful and sick and alone. I was throwing up and sleeping more than ever. At six months pregnant, after an especially difficult month teaching in a class with multiple behaviorally challenged students, I was put on leave to recover from depression, and I was prescribed medication. 
I felt so much shame around that medication, and I hid that from my family for months. At 35 weeks pregnant, I began having severe stomach pains and headaches. Turned out, I had developed severe preeclampsia. Along with this diagnosis came more shame and guilt on top of anxiety and depression. I was supposed to be a mother. That's what women are made for, right? That's why God put us here, and yet I couldn't do this. Without modern medicine to get me through my pregnancy, my baby and I would both be gone. The induction and 48-hour labor was horrifying, and I will not go into the deep, traumatic details here. It resulted in severe postpartum PTSD that would not be diagnosed for three years. My baby, whom we will now call Ginger, was taken away from me, and I was left alone in the delivery room feeling more abandoned than ever. Shame took that moment to hook itself even further in my mind, telling me I was a failure at being a mom already. I wasn't cut out for this. I couldn't do this. Why even try? After seeing Ginger for the first time, 17 hours after birth, I made the decision to be the perfect mom. Perfectionism took over my life. I pumped every three hours for the week he was in NICU. I visited him every day. I worked so hard at perfection that I ended up rehospitalized with an infection myself. When we got home, I apologized to Ginger all the time for not being more perfect. I stayed up all night to watch, make sure he was breathing. I did all the research to make sure I did exactly the right thing. I dressed him perfectly for the weather, and we went to all the events for new moms, like mops here at Big Valley, hospital meetups, and library story time. I was the perfect mom, other than the PTSD blackouts. At first, they were almost daily, then weekly, then monthly. Then it was just occasional nightmares. I thought I was crazy. To feel my body trapped in a time and place that wasn't actually there is terrifying. I was told that it was nothing. I didn't have anything wrong with my body. The notes on my six-week checkup after my birth say no sign of postpartum depression, even though I cried in front of the doctor while Ginger screamed in his car seat. Every time someone at church commented, at least you are all healthy now, or God has blessed you with a beautiful baby, I wanted to throttle them. I didn't know how to be honest about the pain I had endured. Birth wasn't nearly as beautiful and wholesome as it had been made out to be. I was scarred physically and mentally. How do you recover from such pain when everyone just wants to focus on the positive outcome? A friend recognized what I couldn't and used the excuse of our similar relationship to addicts to invite me to Big Valley CR with her when Ginger was eight months old. We made a plan to come that next Tuesday. I ended up coming alone and I joined the codependency small group. I started my first step study that same week. The ladies in my group held my hands, listened, and never judged as I shared my pains that came from trying to be the perfect mom, while also lacking appropriate maternal relationships and processing the pain of loneliness, imperfection, unworthiness, and feeling unlovable. I was just 25 years old. They helped me through that first birthday for Ginger as I relived the traumatic anniversary. During this time, I had a wonderful sponsor who shared with me her own struggles with a postpartum mood disorder. Her bravery helped me feel less alone. Our step study ended a few months into the pandemic, and it was at that time that I stepped away from CR. I was now teaching four grade levels of special day class online, and I was so tired at the end of the day that I went to bed as soon as Ginger did. I didn't have the energy or capacity to continue my CR journey or my recovery through healing. I quit my job at the end of the 2020-2021 school year. I was the best teacher I had ever been when I taught virtually, but my heart had been broken one too many times. Maybe one day I'll go back, but my heart is still healing. Just a few months later, 
After 81 days of negative stick tests and blood tests and one meeting with an infertility specialist, I was pregnant again. This time, I said the four-letter word. I had just come back to CR the week before, joining the very first week of the Adult Children of Dysfunctional Families group with the intention of healing from my burnout, and I was terrified of what would happen next. Drew and I were optimistic, however, and we knew that we could put certain things into place to protect myself and the baby from what could happen. Little did we know that it was Drew who needed protection. Four days after that positive test, Drew sliced the tip of his thumb off while working. He was rushed to the hospital where I sat in the parking lot due to COVID restrictions. That night, I sat on the phone with doctors and nurses, arguing with them about opioids and whether or not I could come into the hospital. Drew had his thumb rebuilt by a great surgeon and the experience re-triggered my PTSD. I don't have much memory from the next month and a half. I lay on the couch, I never slept, and if I did, I had constant nightmares. I barely ate. Ginger watched Disney movies on repeat day after day because I was too sick and too tired to move. I was having dark, intrusive, and suicidal thoughts when I called a friend of mine to ask for help. She just happened to be the right person to call. She had me make a list of every person who might be willing to jump in and help us. Then she told me of a program designed just for moms with an inpatient program and an outpatient intensive program. The only problem was that it was two hours away. I wasn't sure yet if that was right for me. That was a long way to go, and I had Ginger Andrew to take care of. It took me leaving CR one Tuesday evening with the intention of ending it all on the way home to realize that I needed more help. That week, I chose to surrender and admitted that I was powerless over my own life and that it had become completely unmanageable. Step one. Drew drove me to El Camino Hospital in Mountain View on October 11th, 2021. I was four days away from my 28th birthday. I spent one week in one of the best inpatient centers in the US and one of only three inpatient centers designed for perinatal women in the US. My doctor was the top perinatal psychiatrist in California. Within that week, I was eating and sleeping again. I was discharged and I spent 12 weeks living with family friends and attending the partial hospitalization program, an intensive outpatient program called MOMS, or Maternal Outreach Mood Services. That time of healing the shame and guilt I felt began my recovery from PTSD. When I was finally able to move back home, I was about 24 weeks pregnant. I immediately started back up at CR and began a step study. These women walked me through the next few months of making the decision to get a C-section, being diagnosed with preeclampsia again, eight LND visits, and healing from my shame and perfectionism. My constant prayer for my pregnancy was the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change in this pregnancy, the courage to advocate for the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Because of this community's support and my constant prayer for God's wisdom, I was able to have the most beautiful birthing experience on the night of our step study's first potluck that I didn't get to attend. Baby boy will now be Nugget, and I'm grateful to have completed that step study when he was five months old. I joked throughout the pregnancy that Nugget's middle name should be Job because of the pain the pregnancy put me through. I felt as though God was testing my will to live throughout the path he had brought me down. I resonated with Job when he cried, even today my problems are more than I can handle. In spite of my groans, God's hand is heavy on me, Job 23.2. In the end, Nugget's middle name was Jude. Jude means joy. He is our little bundle of joy. He is always smiling and always happy. If you've seen him, you know it. In the time since Nugget's birth, I've begun healing my perfectionism. 
I can't be the perfect mom. I never had one and neither has anyone in this room. I can only do my best with the example God has given us. It's as though God has said to us, may more and more mercy and peace and love be given to you. Jude 1, 2. Jeremiah 1, 5 says, before I formed you in your mother's body, I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart to serve me. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. God has mothered me in my recovery as an adult child by giving me compassion to feel my feelings with the intention of bringing me here not only to heal and grow, but also to continue being a mother to my children. God gave me a community that has wrapped its arms around me and my family as a mother would. God doesn't put harmful expectations on me, nor does God ignore me. God accepts me in my imperfection as has brought me to realize that I was never perfect. Isaiah 66:13 says, as a mother comforts her child, I will comfort you. You will find comfort in Jerusalem. I wasn't the prodigal daughter, but I was the daughter who stayed close by, who was trying to be perfect for God and envious of all the prodigal children coming back. God has offered me a chance to accept his power and restore his perfect, perfect vision of sanity by letting go of the shame and guilt and accepting the tools he led others to create that saved my life, such as Celebrate Recovery, my sponsor, the steps, psychiatric medications, therapy, support groups, and even medical birth inter interventions. Psalm 139, five through six says, you are all around me, behind me, and in front of me. You hold me safe in your hand. I'm amazed at how well you know me. It's more than I can understand. Today, I'm living my 12th step every day. Here at CR, I facilitate the adult children of dysfunctional families open share, and I am very vocal about my experiences with suicidal ideation, hospitalization, medication, intensive programs, and the journey into parenthood as an adult child of a dysfunctional family. I'm a board member of Postpartum Support International California Chapter, a support group facilitator for PSI Zoom groups, as well as a local leader for The Climb, which is the fundraising and awareness arm of Postpartum Support International. And starting next week, I will even be an employee of PSI as the West Coast Regional Coordinator for The Climb. By supporting parents who struggle with perinatal mood and anxiety disorders during the perinatal period, I'm supporting and healing the inner new mom inside of me. And by healing that inner new mom, I'm better, better able to mother myself, my inner child, and my two beautiful boys. At least 20% of new moms and 10% of new dads experience a perinatal mental health disorder at some point in their lives. And rather than hide my own story out of fear and shame, I'm opening up to help a new generation of parents heal and find support. In the last four years, my dad has found his own recovery and is involved with my two boys and loves them with patience and joy. My mom has been cheering me on as I take my steps toward recovery as she heals her own heart as well. I have pursued understanding of my emotional difficulties as a child by receiving a diagnosis of ADHD. Through MOPS, soon to be MOMCO at Big Valley, CR, PSI, and even the MOMS program at El Camino Hospital, I began to repair my relationships with women of all ages and backgrounds. My female friends show me affection, maternal tenderness, and offer assistance throughout my life. I'm now able to be assertive in female circles, reciprocate without feeling threatened, and because I find my importance in God, I am able to separate myself from others' beliefs about me. These female friends include my amazing second sponsor and my accountability partners who have challenged me in my recovery and support me daily as a true friend would. Thank you for being my village. Drew faced his own challenges after he went out, back out in the world to triple check that he was still an addict soon after Nugget's birth. 
For six months, I had no idea, but because I was firmly in a step study at that point, his decisions made less of an impact on me. Being able to understand that the most helpful and most loving action any family member could take is to get help for ourselves from how Al-Anon works for families and friends of alcoholics kept me sane and on my side of the tracks. When he finally opened up about his addiction relapse, I was able to use my recovery skills to keep our house a safe place without denial. In October of 22, soon after learning about Drew's relapse, I journaled using the small group question, how has recovery transformed your life? I wrote, the ability to ask for help, the ability to forgive, not taking responsibility for Drew's actions, and setting boundaries with those near me. I used to think couples were exaggerating when talking about the power of recovery in a relationship, but I now see how much it has done for us. Somehow God led us both out this other side of depression and addiction to be stronger than ever. We are going on seven years of marriage and are more in love and spiritually healthy than ever. Many of you know my children and have seen them running laps around the foyer, especially tonight. They are happy, healthy, active boys, so please pray for my rest and my sanity and that God continues to bless us with the mothering village we have found. My biggest flex has been the ability to forgive my grandmother. I wrote her a letter here in this room one evening during another testimony. Being able to forgive by using the sixth principle was the most freeing thing I've ever been able to do. Not only being able to forgive her, but myself in that same moment. For the first time guests, my favorite part of Postpartum Support International's motto is, you are not alone. I always thought I was the only one feeling the pain I felt. I always thought it was just me hurting the way I hurt, but it's not. That's why community is so important. Al-Anon for Families and Friends say, says, part of the isolation of this disease is the belief that we are unique. No matter what disease we are recovering from, we aren't alone. Without CR, I would not have found the chance to recover from my hurts, habits, and hangups. I wouldn't have journeyed from an adult child of a dysfunctional family to a healed daughter of God. Thank you for letting me share. That was awesome. That was awesome. Hey, our question for tonight is this. On a scale of 1 to 10, where are you at in your recovery, and what does that number mean to you? So think about that for a second. If you're at 10, let's talk. Maybe you can teach next week. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But hey, scale of 1 to 10, check that out. Um, before we read this, the serenity prayer, Let's hear it one more time for Brittany. She did a great job. I hounded her for a while, and then she emailed me stuff, and then like I normally do is I forget about it. So it took a while, but we finally got her up here to share her story, so thank you very much for that. If her story impacted your life, you maybe relate to it, you connect with it, I encourage you, see her afterwards. Buy her a piece of pie. She's going to have like 50 pieces of pie. It'll be awesome. <laughs> but um, get her some pie, get her coffee, whatever, and uh, sit down and talk with her, connect with her. She's like, no, don't buy me anything. Bring her a glass of water, and uh, it'll be great. So, but anyhow, make sure you encourage her. Tell her how much her story impacted your life. 
what you got out of it, that kind of stuff. But uh, let's stand and close with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen.